Hello everyone and thanks for uh, joining today. So um, this is a new series of videos which I'm hoping to put on my channel but they'll also be in the All Things Architecture uh, uh, environment, the, the community that we've set up. Um, I'm Paul Ingram, uh, pretty much the founder of All Things Architecture and um, freelance contractor for quite some time. Um, one of the benefits of being in that network is I've got Richard here today who's going to give us some insights into fractional consulting. Um, Richard, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself. Oh, thanks, Paul. Uh, so, Richard Smith, um, I've been a contractor freelancer since 2005, so I've been running my company for 19 years now. And uh, sort of fractional pretty much off the bat based on the current definition we're going with. But uh, I think it's probably more recently uh, where we've been trying to almost differentiate um, the sort of traditional mindset around contracting to uh, more the, the fractional uh, type of contracting that we're looking at now. And so a couple of things that um, we've discussed, um, we've looked at, um, and maybe the, the viewers would be interested in this, is a kind of maybe what we're, we're going to see as an agenda for today. So I think some good points that we kind of had a bit of a chat about when we had um, a catch-up before this was really what is fractional consulting and how does it differ from freelance consulting, which I think is maybe the norm that people have been doing for the last 20, 25 years. I mean, I've been a contractor since the late 90s. Um, you know, another area that you were interested in was, you know, like things like, is it part-time? Is it, you know, like a full-time job? Um, you know, what is it? What does it offer to clients? Is that a flexible option? Is that a cheaper option? You know, is it less skilled? Is it more constraints? So I think there were, there were good things, but I think there was an interesting one you were talking about, which was the risks to organisation and people. So that's, that's one that I think will be good to explain to people. Maybe also what type of organisation it suits, because I think you and I both know that there's no one size fits all in the contractor market, especially when you're out, you know, talk to agents and things like that. Um, so I think we could we could maybe have a go at some of those and maybe try and uh, bring some some standards. Because I know when you and I spoke, it was a bit like I thought I had a definition of fractional consultant, it was quite accurate. But then you had a slightly different definition. I, thought, I think everyone has really Yeah, it's it, it's really interesting because we we both come from quite an experienced contractor background, but yeah, we were both pitching it in, in different ways, you know? So so maybe just on that first topic then, what's a good definition to give the viewers of, of, of what fractional consultant means to you? So, I mean, for me, it's, it's literally, we could call it the evolution of contracting, but I think more, more appropriately, it's the reclassification of contracting. Right. So whereby, um, if, if we look at traditional contracting in any other segment than the one we would traditionally operate in, you, know, you, you operate under a, a provision or a service or, or, or a statement of work where you've got specific things you're looking to try and do or looking to try and provide. Um, you're independent. You're, you're not an employee. You're there. You're not... Um, you not be you don't have that level of oversight from an employer. They're not trained to do things in a very very specific way. It's all about the the end deliverable and doing it. You have that contractual relationship, so it's all based in in contract. It's very much a, generally a B two B contract. It's not um uh, you know an employer type employer employee type contract. Uh, the temporary, you know, they're great for change, but it's not a it's not generally a resource uh, model for augmenting uh, resource for a longer period of time um, in terms of bulking out what you might have as an existing capability. Um, the Generally, the, the what you're looking for is very specific skills or expertise. It's not just a person. <laughs> That's uh, good. Not a bum in the seat. Well, and, and this is it, yeah. So it's not like somebody who's got a driving license per se, but you know, somebody who's got you know, very, very specific um, or, or, or even just specific expertise or skills that could be a soft type skill it could be very hard in a very very specific setting um, and and obviously the way the payments work around that as well so um, I think like with everything 
payment's not guaranteed. It's based on the quality of the output ultimately. And it's generally um I if it's if it's um uh, time materials, that's great, you know, in terms of at least the time as it's been consumed and, and and as expenses are being accrued, they are they are being paid for. But within a schedule of achieving what you decide to achieve, um with generally a payment clause, a delayed payment clause. Um, or you know, fixed cost is a, a model that's really, really starting to um, become quite popular in this segment as well, where it's all very milestone-based, achieving the milestones and locks the payments. So, so like a statement of work type thing there? Yeah, so all very much statement of work. Um, and I think it's it's that that's what separates, let's say, um, your typical contracting fractional type work from that temporary employee type relationship where it the outputs are actually going so everybody knows up front what is expected what needs to be delivered it's not um i'm bringing in um a cleaner for five seven hours a day um to maybe do x amount of houses whatever that looks like it's not an operational type arrangement it's very much specifically a delivery type arrangement so do you think it saves like a client money you know, like instead of having a bum on a seat for three months or six months, can you deliver? And there's a question of timeline as well, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, are you, are you accelerating programs by doing that where they get the ability to draw down on a PO or, you know, they get the flexibility to say, I want you two days or I want you five days because the project has to do X, Y, Z. Is that kind of accurate? They're probably coming back slightly um i mean what what is the client buying in that in in that particular arrangement so whereby let's say for example they're just drawing down time so what's the client buying and is that um are they buying just a resource augmentation say person a b or c is it that person's got specific skills that they're, that they're actually being drawn on are they for specific tasks is it a, a, and this is it so probably just coming back a bit in terms of that very very specific question yeah does it save clients money well it could potentially cost clients more. it really comes down to what's the client trying to achieve and what's the benefits that come out of that now you're not going to want to maybe bring in a permanent person to do x when x is quite transient x might only happen um, once every blue moon, it might just be a facilitator, a, a, a component of change, for example. Um, and would person A actually be the best person to deliver that component of change whenever it lands or whenever it comes up? So at least then, okay, the cost is probably still going to be less on the whole fractional thing. But even if it was on par the same, at least you're able to directly attribute the cost to the benefit. And you're able to directly get the right person at the right time to do the right thing rather than um, any of the potential overheads of just trying to get that one person to do something. Now, in terms of um, yeah. a PO drawdown, now, it, a bit more of a complicated because POs are generally associated to budgets on a client side. So um, for a, a typical um, sort of finance type you know I, I want to have this budget to do something there generally has to be some justification behind it within the organization right. now um it could be very much so look i want to have arguments like an elastic resource to do xyz um and that might be operational things that's less contracts that's less fractional that's more probably um sort of a temporary employment relationship right okay. um but what i'm what i won't uh, dismiss here is um in terms of contract infraction that generally are underpinned by a po so you might have a contract nsa in place you might have an sow and all the rest of it but oh. it's the po that guarantees ultimately the payment that is the promise that you know you do a good job you will get this money now in terms of the drawdown of, of that po it's generally governed by the sow in terms of hitting the milestones or providing um whatever whatever time is indicating that SOW. So it's like in terms of a drawdown of a PO which is aligned to an SOW, that's normal practice. In terms of having a PO 
which is linked to something the business wants to do. That's normal practice. Having um, an elastic PO that maybe augments a team resource-wise, not capability-wise, that's probably a bit of a grey area, to be honest, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, so so like when I've seen it, like when I've um, did some fractional consulting for, for clients, my, my definition, as, as you and I discussed, I was kind of like, well, to me it feels like it's maybe two to three days a week, it's not a full-time thing. Mm. But then actually you and you and I kind of came to the same conclusion was that that, that might be wrong. Um, you know, there's a good chance it's really more about the definition of the outcome. And if that outcome took five days, and, and interesting enough, I had uh, you know a global client last year um who pretty much was happy to kind of save about 70% costs. So instead of having a bum in the seat for 20 grand a month, yeah. then it was basically an output. So if it took me five days to do the, the, the output and we kind of did some artifact production, you know, of, um, so there was some projects, you know, like a, a, a comms project, there was a database project, there was a marketing project. So there was some business projects and some tech projects. And what they were interested in doing was they were interested in having some of the governance stuff go through, but they didn't need somebody on site full time. Yeah. So, so you're talking so, about there is an advisory type mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Your SOW effectively governs uh, an advisory type relationship that the, the client can basically call on advisory, uh, providing you're available and all the rest of it based on a PO drawdown. And that's completely normal because it's governed by the SOW. There's a specific requirement there. It's not. Yeah. An elastic uh, augment resource yeah. type type arrangement. So, so, so I had like for an example there, I had five work streams of work, but I had things like you know go to uh, enterprise architecture governance forums, attend some workshops. So I might have a one week where I do five days. I might have one week where I do one day. Yeah. So because it's more aligned to what the actual work is, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that's I think that was a kind of interesting thing that you and I both had sort of similar but not perfectly aligned descriptions of what we are very much aligned to be honest. But I, I like with everything, especially in the area we work in with architecture. There's many ways of seeing the same subject, and obviously, if we if we focus based on the supply pattern, then in your instance there, it looks like part time. But what we've actually got there is a, a supply pattern based on time and materials, which is called upon when it best suits the objectives of the client. Yeah, yeah, totally accurate, yeah. yeah. Now, in this instance, your instance, your example, um, that could be, ironically, three days a week or, or whatever that looks like in terms of what support that client needs through that advisory at whatever time. It could be five days a week. Or it could be two days one month and then 30 days the next one, I think, but 20 days the next month. It, and, and this is it. It's, it's the, the pattern of supply is not what makes something fractional. It doesn't have to be a fixed three days a week for 12 months. Yeah. Uh, converse to that, it doesn't have to be five days or one month every one day every month or however yeah. it looks. It, it could ramp up and ramp down based on the requirements of the client and what yeah. they ultimately need. So like a good definition for me was end of the month, architecture governance, you know, EDA, you know, right. enterprise design authority. So I need to present and get the actual product through or the project through. But the first week is maybe building the documentation and talking to the different stakeholders, getting all that information and then maybe just like the next week is like a day. So I might have done five days in that first week. I know I've got a day at the end for the Enterprise Design Authority because I'm, you know, I'm, I've got to sit on a call and wait until I'm actually active. So that could take three hours. So there's kind of half a day. So I know I've got five and a half days spent. I maybe say I've got a PO for 15 days. And I'm not going to spend the 15 days if I don't need those middle two weeks 100%. to do any work. So yeah. the client gets the great opportunity there, in my eyes, where they've only paid for five and a half days. Instead, 
if they were taking a normal freelancer, as you say, you know, like a, a perm slash temp employee, they would be signing up to 20 days per month. And I'm not saying that people are going to sit about twiddle their thumbs, but if the business doesn't have the work for them, they're not doing anything. They might go do research or training or something like that. So but the business is yeah, but the yeah. business itself is not going to progress any projects. They don't have any unlikely, but you know, hundred percent. And actually, if we look at look at a typical employment relate uh, relationship, um, you're generally if you're expecting any more than sixty five percent utilization of a person, then you're over expecting. So if you've got somebody down, we'll call it traditional full time type employment relationship, whether that's um, you know a permanent person or an on payroll temp or whatever else. Someone's around for two hundred and twenty days a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, then okay, you might not pay them for bank holidays, for example, or weekend or whatever else, but you're probably paying a hundred percent of the boom time for sixty five percent of. Um, effectively and uh, you know operational or or effectiveness and so yeah I mean it's it, and you know what there's there are clients whereby they they need those bums on seats and and let's face it most organisations need a level of bum on seat you need people that are around operationally yeah. running the business all the time you know it, it, yeah. it's it's yeah. normal but would you want that to change relationship and can can a person or a people within a change um, initiative, it deliver, if they delivered at 100%, they would normally outpace the ability of the organisation to absorb the change. So at that point, is there a better pattern? And I'm not saying that a guaranteed five days a week doesn't suit things. There's plenty of patterns where that, that suits stuff. Um, yeah. And where it's aligned to that type of initiative and change, there's no reason why a fractional can't provide that level of support. So, so here's here's a bit of a question, and it's probably a bit of an unfair question, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to kind of put you on the spot, but you know, like what percentage of companies do you reckon could adopt fractional consulting? Is it everybody? Is it two percent? Oh. I know, I know, I know. Data is probably pretty difficult. No, no. To okay, so and stuff like that. But it's it's, it's it's a difficult question. So, all right, first of all, uh, probably just. You know what is a company so there's um there's six million uh, registered companies in the uk uh the vast majority of those would be considered a micro enterprise they could be one to you know basically just a few people um and, and i mean they could that particular segment could could benefit just if they were looking at um sort of you know start startups scale up type um you know initiatives where that personal people might need something to help them move. So an example of that, we both run micro enterprises. Um, we could and we could have uh, a fractional help around marketing because neither of us, you know, marketing geniuses per se. Um, yeah. or the, and when we focus on marketing, we're not doing something else where we will wow. probably be able to make more money. So, you know, bringing in marketing fractional expertise would make but it has benefit to uh micro enterprises and you know in terms of those micro enterprises in terms of scale up uh the options that sort of thing they might want to spend money you know, things like architecture start coming to their own if we go up to the next sort of segment so um we'll just call it the sme uh which is the vast majority of what's left so um it's 95 percent are micro enterprises and so you've got five percent left uh which is to do the quick math 300,000 companies oh. Uh, Thirty thousand companies, whatever it is, and um, the vast majority left is um, is SMEs. Now SMEs, like really really large organisations, have uh, you know needs for change. They try to avoid disruption, that sort of thing, and they need to get capability in for a period of time. Uh, so that they they're well served by not just um, people doing stuff, but also the advisory around the strategy of doing stuff and you know those sorts of services my voice is slightly going then um so it really fits quite well in that sort of small medium enterprise space as well as it would in sort of the startup and scale up wherever you have change um you know fractional is really really good when you're in the large organization space and we're talking probably uh, the top 100 um sized companies um 
they also go through periods of change and they will probably already have change teams and governance in place and all the rest of it, but they're not necessarily going to have the expertise to um, do whatever they're looking to do. And that might be a capability maturity uplift in a particular part of their business, if we look at it from an architecture point of view, um, to achieve what they need to do. It could even be auditing or it could, you know, they just want a second set of eyes. It could just be advisory around, um, because obviously a lot of people go through the, sort of the corporate chain. You tend to get a lot of indoctrination around that company and, and you start seeing um, the less outside for you. So that can really um, help large businesses as well. So look, in terms of organisation, I mean, it could be any, any organisation, whether it's publicly or privately owned, of any size, can really benefit from fractional supply. Um, but like um, like with most things, when you try to align to different um, industry sizes and, and company sizes, it will differ slightly based on the... Yeah. the my, view was, my view was I thought that VC-backed companies would benefit well from creating maturity in their business. And that's, yeah. you know, so so I, I guess I, I agree with you that it could be any company but I think it's a bit like horses for courses. Yeah. I think it's a bit like what you were describing there was pretty accurate, which is a big, large company, you know, like let's say a tier one bank. They, they've got, you know, like one of the biggest banks in the UK are banking groups. I'm sure you know what, what banking group I'm talking about. But they have like nearly a thousand solution architects and enterprise architects. Yeah. So... You know, they've got a really mature enterprise practice and governance and, as you say, BAU change and everything else. So it's really only going to be kind of like assistance. You know, they're not going to require you to set it up or anything Potentially, like potentially. And, and, and that's obviously a very, very specific example in our, our yeah. world. But um, let's let's change the dynamics. Like, so obviously you've, you've, you've focused on VC there. Um, now... Venture capital could be to go buy a company to go split it off, yeah, or or to absorb or whatever it is. So there's a lot in terms of mergers and uh, and divestiture. Would a business normally have the capability to actually go and do that? I mean, it's not a thing they do all the time. No. So unless your company is to you know divest and merge, you probably haven't built the capability around that. Yeah. So actually bringing in uh, you know fractional supply into that. Um, would really, really benefit. And if we yeah. look at um, the, the big banking group type example, okay, so they've got a big um, EASA type um, organisation which is uh, able to manage and, and, and analyse and know the, the current operating uh, environment very, very well. But would they be able to necessarily look at, oh, we're looking to bring in a new uh, banking product and how would that interface across these various systems? they know the systems, they probably have an idea of the data and everything in there, but they have the idea of the requirement. Or it could be more around regulatory, a, a new regulation has come out and they need to go and ad adhere to all, even ascertain whether they need to adhere to it. So, for example, very large banking group, they might need to adhere to DORA in Europe. And they might be going, oh, how do we do that? Um, but actually, if you'd followed uh, UK regulation, you're probably almost there across your entire group anyway. Um, and it's these bits that you need to go and do. And, and OK, that's that's advisory to a point. And it's basically taken almost a, a, a what they've got, done a bit of a gap analysis and gone, this is your report. Wow. Um, but that's valuable in itself. They can then go and run run with that. Yeah. So it's those things where, yeah, definitely very large enterprises, whether it's doing merger divestiture or whether it's trying to adhere to new regulation, whatever it might be, yeah. that you wouldn't normally build an organisation to cope with because these are things that just get thrown from, you know, the, the, the right-hand side or or they're just things that don't happen often enough. That's where, you know, it really comes into its own. So one of the kind of areas that I think... Um, be good to get your view on is is like I'll give you I'll give you my experience of it is that kind of the different sides of companies. So as an example, your big large banking group, the bureaucracy and paperwork is we're we're just never going to get on the prepared supplier list. Too small, never going to be there. But yet, you know, there's always this conversations that are all about helping small businesses and stuff like that. But 
that's just never going to happen with us. So so I find that frustrating that we'll go through agents to, to go into that, but it does tend to be more that's, um, that's Apple. Yeah, so so that bum in, that bum in the seat model does tend this tends to be that. The other bit of there is is VCs, you know, more like a retainer type structure, um, or you know, maybe seven, eight hundred user size companies, something like that. Yeah. To get about the definition for, for viewers, but you know, that type of company for me is is a, you know, they don't have a full-time EA practice. They might have a couple of solution architects, a couple of data architects, maybe a couple of application business architects. Yeah. But they're not glued together like a practice, you know, um, and bringing in those types of skill sets. So the reason why I'm kind of mentioning that is, is I was interested in your view of, you know, like what's the flexibility that it gives to engagements versus just a bum on a seat? So, I mean, and there's quite a few points there that probably we could attack so look obviously in terms of flexible supply and, and as we've already touched on this it's what you need when you need it now there's some restrictions around this and um, which could be probably worked out in advance anyway um and i'll touch on a few so and i, I don't quite know how you, i think we basically go about getting business in different ways so i'll, I'll, I'll touch on probably some of mine so I do quite a bit of direct to client. I do um, mostly white label through consultancies these days. Right. Um, in terms of agency, uh, in the last two years, I've done two days. Right. All right. So, so it's, 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 it's a slightly different model. And mm -hmm. um, now, in terms of where you um, said about, about getting on board with the the PSLs and all the rest of it, now, if it's a direct to client relationship. There's no reason why you can't have your MSAs signed and your NDA signed up before you actually do an SOW. Um, and it's the MSAs and the NDAs that generally take the legal time. Right. Whether you're accepting client terms or whether the client's accepting supplier terms, it really depends on which, uh, which is quicker generally, but it generally it depends on the organisation as well. Then you can agree later on what that SOW looks like. And you can do that after a point of pre-sales. So, you know, um, my engagements for direct-to-client is generally um, more often than not, we have a quick chat just to basically see what they're look at, looking at. We might evolve that into a, a workshop-type activity, um, by which I mean it's just a decent chat. We get together, we've got a bit of an agenda, and we start knocking through what the client actually wants. Um, and then we put out an SOW um, and you know, move forward. Now, there's no reason why an MSA or uh, an NDA can't go out quite early on in that process. And actually, NDAs generally go out very, very early in the process. Otherwise, you can't even have a chat. Oh. So there is that. Now, as that sort of let, let's say we've got uh, an engagement to do A, B, and C, uh, but something happens to the company uh, during that process, and all of a sudden there needs to be changes to that, or you find that. The initial information of which it was based on, some of the assumptions, all the rest of it just aren't right. Well, you can do that through a change request mechanism. And what I tend to do with um, uh, my contracts and SOWs is there's a, a, an established contract mechanism which allows an established change mechanism which allows for uh, both sides to agree a change to the contract. Right. And generally, very very simple. It's literally just a piece of paper which is blah 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 blah. Person signs it, chops a good one. So they can still have that level of flexibility as if they'd gone and somehow just built their own internal consultancy to go and do these things. Um, now with um, I'm sorry, my dog's barking, but with the That's uh, fine. I think I think it's mine. No, <laughs> no exactly. luckily it's quite quiet. Uh, with uh, sort of the white label consultancy arrangements um, and getting onto PSLs, they've generally done that as part of bigger pieces of work anyway. Uh, um, or as just a general interaction with that with a client. So um, I've generally uh, already come to a point of terms with the consultancy that I might be white labeling through. We have an idea of the, there's an MSA in place, there's an NDA in place, idea of rank commercials, payment terms, that sort of thing. And then it's just issuance of ESW as needs come up. Yeah, so how, how long do you think on average does it get, you know, like, Let's say somebody comes to you, like I've had 
in the last six months, I've probably had three or four people reach out to me and say, look, I, I, I'd like to get you in to do a bit of work for us. And, you know, that to me is, you know, so first is, it's really great because I go, that's really good because people want to come and talk to me and, and I feel like some of my LinkedIn posts are actually coming across people recognising uh, without the LinkedIn algorithm probably hiding me. Um, you know, I kind of feel, oh, that's really great. But then either it drags on for months and yeah. happens or it takes me like three months to onboard them once they've taken like all of the procurement and legals and all that. What are you kind of seeing and, and how do you... How do you find cash flow like that? I'll tell you what, it's it's it, it varies really, really widely. So yeah. um, I'll go for the two most extreme examples. Um, the first one would be, um, it was actually very, very recent, yesterday, uh, whereby I, we managed to, something came in really urgent, um, and within a space of two hours, I was working on it. Uh, had you done work for them before already? No, no, so this is completely brand new client uh, uh, you know bringing in um so it basically went from awareness right to action and having to get a, a paperwork and having to uh, put together it was a fixed cost piece of work as well so having to put together S the sow and making sure that we're happy with all the payment terms and all the rest of it and we turned that around in two hours that includes the fact that it's a white label consultancy relationship so they wanted things like uh, to do they wanted to make sure that i, I Proof of company, VAT registration, insurance, oh. uh, passport, you know, all, everything effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, if you've got both sides that are willing to drive really, really quickly in that sort of panic situation, you can, if you're quite organised, you can turn it around really, really quickly. Yeah. The other extreme to that uh, was, um, you know, relationship I started to try and cultivate with a consultancy back in 2016. Right. We didn't do any work together until 2020 or billable work together until 2020. So it's four years. You know? So we talk about some really, really big extremes here. And yeah. I, I think it's never see never never see a, a work around trying to do networking or, or, or bringing in interest or anything else as dead. Because even if it's you never get anything direct, you might get something indirect. And that whole if you look at your typical sales funnel and you look at the fact that you know, you spread awareness. So basically potential clients have an idea that you exist and what you do and all yeah. the rest of it. And then you try and bring them. So then they come to you because they're interested in what, you know, you provide and how that might work for them and all the rest of it. And then you try and help them through that decision phase to, uh, you know, actually make the decision to, you know, come to come to Paul or come to Richard and our respective companies to go do whatever it is for them. And then the action of basically securing that sale, doing the, you know, there's a statement of work and make sure all the contracts are, are, are all in place and all the rest of it. So you can go and start what it is um, that they require. Um, and I say that it's, it's a, depending on the, the target segment, depending um, on the channel I tend to use or whatever, it really does vary um, trying to get through that funnel. Yeah. So what, what sort of, I mean, I, I think we've kind of talked through, you know, various things such as like what's the definitions and part-time Client flexibility, costs, onboarding. Yeah. I find cash flow a pain because I can get December and January, <laughs> but I might earn absolutely nothing. Yeah. And, and it's different, that's different from a kind of bum in the seat. But where I, where I was kind of going to ask you was, is what, what do you think the risks are? And I, that's why I brought the, the December, January, because it's a risk to us that we have no income. And that, that's like 20% of, you know, your whole annual income, which is quite a lot of money. If I paused your salary for two months, you'd be pretty having a word with me, you know, going, what's yeah. going on? I think I find, I find vendors don't recognise that, that, you know, they're doing so much in the background that they, 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 I don't think they recognise the elapsed time and the impact that has to you. So flipping that on its head is, is what's the risks to them? Okay, so I, I, and you've you very much hit the nail on the head there. There's a big risk to the supplier in this. You know, effectively, if you know, um, if they've got you on hold for two months, um, you know, you could be losing two months' money. And and let's face it, most permanent people are two months away from losing everything. So if they lost their income for two months, they would lose everything. Um, 
so obviously we need to be a bit more resilient than that you know um but in terms of the other flip of the coin is we don't stop so if you're waiting and I'll, I'll give an example in a moment about this but you know if you're waiting for a client to come back based on a conversation and they go oh yeah you know what we really really want you there's a chance that you no longer have the availability to service that client yeah. um and that comes in different variations. So it could be that you can still play a part, but you're going to have to augment it with other people. It could be that, and as we saw this in 2021 a lot, which is you just can't get hold of anybody to help them out because the market becomes so constrained. And we do have this, um, this unfortunate pattern in the UK where everybody wants to do things at the same time. From our point of view, it's like buses coming. You know, it's, it, we've got five buses all of a sudden, one hasn't come for a while. But from a, a client point of view, it's they they really start constraining the market. And even though I think we all try to advise, look, you're better off um, uh, if if you're looking to actually do something, look, try and get it done as soon as possible. Especially because at least then you've got the you've got an idea of what the market conditions are rather than waiting. But if you could just plan these things where. You know, and this is it. Nobody can really predict the market, but if you if you're a, a client and you could predict supply curves, then you would probably put everything in in the low. So do you do you think you would have the balls to literally say to a client, if you don't sign me up in seven days, I just can't guarantee it. And do you know what? I I'll not be around if you don't want to do that because I will. Mean, I mean, I mean, you know what? I'll I'll give I'll give that example now. Actually, so. Uh, um, Back quite a few years ago, um, I uh, was onboarding um, a very, very large system integrator. <laughs> and uh, it, will, it will remain nameless. But um, because of the onboarding process took so long, I actually managed to squeeze uh, a couple of engagements in between the initial conversation and the, the, when it actually came off. And to be fair, I you know when it came off, there was quite a lot of work to do, so it really did tie me up for for about um for about eighteen months, almost two years. Um, so it did come off, but th th there was a danger there, and actually I'll, just, I'll I'll go into a bit more detail about that. There was a danger there whereby that big system integrator wouldn't have had access to me because I could have ended up having a piece of work that went over. Now, weirdly, the last piece of work before them they actually wanted me to do something else and they actually missed out by a day. Right. So it was a day between the system integrator getting me and the client, which was also a system integrator, weirdly, they became one, um, actually being able to continue using my services, albeit for something different. Um, and I mean, this is the problem. So at the moment, you know, um, it looks like it's very much a client market so uh, a client may feel that they can drag their feet a bit but what i will always advise is that you might feel that now the market might provide that capacity now but all of a sudden the market changes because everybody wants to do something at the same time because it's all based on the same social triggers and, yeah. and at that point there is no guarantee you're going to be available so i think it's always prudent to everybody has to be aware of the risk of not having something resourced but let's face it from our point of view we don't want to because it pre-sales cost money it, it might not be costing the client but it costs us a lot of money and we have to put a lot of investment in it do we really want to go and do pre-sales for things that we aren't going to be able to do so the, the, there is there is a bit of a you know a bit of a balancing act we need to make sure that if we are going to do pre-sales that it's something we can probably do yeah. based on the initial assessment of the the potential conversion from that client you have to take that into consideration but um if the client changes those metrics because they want to uh, delay something out three months it has to be at the realization that no organization is likely to have uh, the oh. resource. It's not just um, us in, in our capacity as fractionals. Um, you usually find that actually quite large companies all of a sudden have lots of demand oh. and they don't, oh. they're unable to. Yeah, it's... I, I, I find it difficult to to be, because like I want to be fair to the client. Yeah. I want to be honest and open, but I find myself not being honest and open. I find myself kind of getting 
you know, just taking what they want. And, and I kind of feel like saying, you know, like, I really want to give you the best service, but by having radio silence for weeks, I yeah. kind of don't know what you're doing. And I don't want them to come back and go, right, we're all good to go. And you go, I'm sorry, I'm not available. Because I kind of feel it's like it's my fault for resourcing schedule, you know? It's and not. It's not. Um, so, I, and I, I had this bit of a fight with a client last year, actually, around um, me providing them resource certainty. And I was doing so, but um, they failed to, you know, secure the piece where they got resource certainty for now. Um I basically at that point had said, look, I can't give you resource certainty anymore because you effectively wiped out four weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and that's coming back, that's a month, right? So for a lot of people, a month is quite crippling. Um, so I think you, you just have to be fair to everybody. And that includes fairness to yourself. So we all talk about sustainability in business. Um not specifically the ESG stuff, but you know, keep making sure that a business can, can continue to function, that it has the capability to continue to function, the the, the cash revenues, the the ability to uh, absorb um, continuity events, that sort of thing, and and we have to adhere to that as well. So you know, we we don't we're not here to just service one client, and mm -hmm. um, we're here to service any client potentially that it will benefit from our services and even from a macro point of view macroeconomic point of view we taken ourselves out willingly for let's say you know a month two months just to try and um, help that client when they decide to come to the party it's not good it's not good economic sense for the uk either uh, which obviously will drive their revenues at some point um so look, i, I won't i won't feel bad about it but it does need managing and and actually, as a, as part of the sort of your initial approach to a client, depending on what channel you're going through and all the rest of it, getting an appreciation of how long the process is going to take on their side before they actually want to start doing stuff, getting as much as you can lined up, um, and then stopping out to put in your calendar the pencil marks of you know penciling them out gives you an idea of well okay, this is going to take them two months before they can come to the party. Yeah. Do you know what? We can go do the two months somewhere else. Uh, but it's on their risk that maybe just come back in two months. We might need to move things around. We might need to change the type of delivery or whatever it yeah. is that need to try and accommodate them. But there will be instances where you just can't. Yeah, I think for me, it's I, I take it back a little bit to one of the things we talked about earlier in, in the podcast, which is, you know, that flexibility, the fractional consultant definition of being around, but, you know, not being around, not costing them money, but having a PO. Yeah. And I think I think those things get all a bit forgotten about in the very, very interim part. So I think, you know, and that was one of the reasons why I said yeah. to you, you know, look, I'd be really keen to do something that tries and uh, kind of explains a lot of the market um or the fractional consulting world to the market because about three years ago when I kind of entered it um, and I have done the, the odd full-time contract for a short period of time but predominantly for me I kind of thought initially it was just going to be I'll be looking for part-time jobs and, and I didn't really transform into my head that it was sales and marketing I was going to give up some of my years earnings for that you know a lot of people fall into it. When I started contracting, I mean, I, and that was a very long time ago. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was very much on the initial, oh, I'm going to, I'm doing it to earn money. I want to do it for a short period of time. And, and you know, yeah, wrongly, I saw it as almost employment, but not secured. And it was, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, my, my mindset evolved quite quickly when, you know, you get hit by the realities. Um, there's, there's people that, do enter this market and they go a different route. I mean, and if we look now, a lot of people will be coming out of the per market and going into contracting oh. will probably largely go for an umbrella route. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they literally are temporary employees. They're on somebody else's payroll or the rest of it. They don't actually have those overheads or anything else. I think it, it serves quite a lot of people quite well. Mm -hmm. But when you want to maybe go to the next level of that, um, and you actually want to start 
you know, having that brand and servicing and, and actually having more control of your own destiny and, and that sort of thing, then you, you move to that, you, you know, the, that for me, level of thinking is just really different. Yeah, for, for me, it was a bit like, I'm never going to be a contractor CTO. So maybe there is some interim jobs, but they are few and far between. Mm. You maybe get CIOs, CEOs, CFO roles, but they are very much a, either a fixed-term contract for three years, which maybe that's what the job demands for that company, yeah. or they're really interim and it's just a gap. You know, it's to, to cover the gap of the company's being left short, either somebody's vacated via illness or vacated via quick job exit, and they just need somebody to, you know... And, and, and that's that separation again from what is operational versus what is maybe more strategic, transformational, change-led... And, and, and we'll touch on um, your CTO, CIO that you've 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 highlighted there. Yeah, if you're going in to do an operational CIO role, then that's probably not fractional supply. Um, if you're going in doing advisory to uh, operational CIO, that, that probably is. Yeah. But if you're going in to change that organisation, whether it's through strategy or transformation in terms of that planning of what that looks like, uh, or moving forward, and and that could involve advisory, it could involve doing of stuff, and um, that starts very much falling into this this bracket. And if we look at the vast majority of CTO roles now, they aren't running IT functions. They are uh, very much um, product leaders. They're very much in that space where there's um, a digital product or a set of digital products for a, a digital engagement, digital outcome, um, and it can be transient. So it can be, you know, once this is in play, actually, you don't need a transformational change CTO anymore. You just need someone to keep the lights on, whatever that looks like. Um, so I wouldn't, when aligning to any traditional role type, and I, I try not to use roles in, in describing services, but when you're doing those sort of things, I think it's that separation of, is it operational or is it change strategy transformation you're doing something different i think if you can make that that chain that differentiation in anything then you can decide what value you can add as a fractional and what really is not suitable for you mm -hmm. that's a good it's a good point you made there about not being aligned to a job role you know as yeah. we're obviously both enterprise architects and we've come up through the ranks of backgrounds yeah i mean not, you know I've, I've done it director roles i've done uh, cifd yeah. roles i love yeah. architecture but as but, fractional you're not being a role you're being more yeah. advisory you're being more supportive literally you could and, and having that i mean let's face it having a, an architecture background Make sure you're a damn good consultant, you know, uh -huh. because you you have that that real strength of background of everything that's going on and what is required to actually drive change and all the rest of it. Uh -huh. you, it's it's almost educated advisory, uh, but you know, it's you're not going in necessarily as an enterprise architect. You could be going in providing enterprise architecture services, and that's yeah. that's the difference. Like setting up a practice, or yeah. you know. I mean, one of the roles recently, you know, I, I, I was doing was, uh, it was maybe 18 months ago, actually, the kind of output. And it, what I demonstrated was a, an assessment of looking at the business and the solution architect had like seven job hats, you know. So that, that's not what an enterprise architect would then normally go in and do. But, but as part of me helping them build out an enterprise architecture function, it was jo job descriptions, roles and responsibilities, who's doing what, yeah. and then recognising where people are failing, where people's time's limited. As you say, it's it's almost like a skill set. It's, 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 it's not a, a job type as such. It's a wide, you know, we, we both have the, the TOGAF background, you know, the Open Architecture Group Framework background. And um, we would both go, oh, it's business, data, apps, and tech, you know. Oh, the VDAP model, yeah. Yeah, yeah the VDAP model, right. And I've right. explained that to some startups and things like that, and they're like, what's that? So, you know, and that's a standard enterprise architecture sort of framework to work from, but actually that's not kind of what you would be doing, but it's because you see those as the four pillars and something inside each of those pillars is the thing that you're going to do for the business. You know, potentially, yeah, and, and um, I think you know 
those pillars have been slightly expanded out as we've gone from oh, yeah. sort of traditional system design into more more organisational um, awareness. Things like uh, what motivations are and what strategy looks like and blah, 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 go beyond the BDAP model. But the BDAP model is a great way of seeing what something does, mm-hmm. uh, what something needs to do, uh, especially from a technology system point of view. So how many times do we go into um, technology organisations where they have no idea what their IT estate is doing? Um, where they are with the life cycle or, or anything like that. And actually, what are the real impacts if something goes wrong? Mm-hmm. And generally, you'll find that through some level of corporate amnesia and all the rest of it, current state thoughts have just completely disappeared. Now, we know for the vast majority of IT uh, initiatives, you need to have an idea of what current state looks like and what its impacts are and all the rest of it. So that in itself is a valuable skill. That in itself is a is a, a, a proper fractional billable skill because how often do you need to go and figure out what the uh, current estate looks like from scratch? In theory, you should be able to do it, embed it, and then have yeah. some sort of control in the organisation that continues to update it. Um, you've done that bit, they, and then it's operationalised, and they can go carry on with it. Yeah, and, um, and and I think you know that's where you know I've been doing some mentoring for students, and you know over the last four or five years, I've done quite a lot of mentoring. And now I've set up a course to help people. That's what the All Things Architecture community was for, was to help people bring in, um, you know, the view of how do you become a product owner or from a business analyst, a product owner, and from an SME server engineer to a solution architect and from a solution architect, tech architect, up into being an EA. But one of the key things that you, you've said there is, is really, really interesting for me is, how do you demonstrate in an interview you just have skills? You know, so like some of the stuff, and that's where fractional consulting is quite aligned to. It's kind of not, as you say, it's not a job type, but it's a set of skills. And quite often in, in I'll say, interviews, people ask you, so how will you output this and how will you do that? And you go, well, I'm kind of not really sure how to answer that because you don't know what the outputs are because you don't have maybe the resources on board at the moment. Yeah. But the other flip side of that is, is I've just got a set of skills. I know how to come in and do stuff and I know how to articulate it. And, it, and it's hard to demonstrate that in a CV. So when I'm working through with some of my mentoring students, what I kind of get them to do is build a really good profile so that people understand that they're very rounded to that be yeah. that model. You know, the, not just a business architect, they're not just a data architect. They sit across the white thing, but they can jump down into one area, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that, that's the mark of a good architect. If we've very, very specifically got to architect, you know, and that's the mark of a really good architect is that being able to take a very, very wide view, but not lose track of the really, really deep um, elements of that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, interviews and stuff, I've I did an interview last week. It's the first time I've done one in a very, very, very long time. I don't right. intend to do them. Um, as I said, I generally go through like a, a chat into workshop into um, SFU sure. supply. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, you get and it's the cats here. Uh, you get asked various different um, sort of questions, and some of them are around how would you approach and how you insight things. And what people probably want is. An answer which is uh, quite a linear logistical thought process of how you go about your first few days or what you need to start and all the rest of it. Yeah. And um, if we look at typical architects, they're very, very good in tactics and strategy. They tend to be slightly weaker in the logistic um, type thought process, which is literally that I can think of everything at the same time and, you know, it will go bang, but that, that, that almost serialization of how it looks going from A to B mm-hmm. is something that really separates the absolute best architects from those that are just merely doing, you know, the typical librarian type architect that we, we, we see in various organizations. And because it's that pragmatic, that actually bringing the benefits of architecture alive, which is done through that, that logistical thought. So if you can do that during an interview and then you effectively just think of two things and it's, you, you know, having clear purpose, bringing people on the journey. So, what you're trying to do is bring the interviewer on that journey. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, just another architectural view. Um, as we would always create a, 
a different architectural view of whatever that person, that stakeholder needs to know. Yeah. In this case, it's generally, how would you go about blah, 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 and the rest of it? It's just that yeah. logistical view and that clear purpose. It's absolutely spot on about taking people on a journey through the the, the actual CV slash interview part. You know, it's, it's part of one of the courses that's on all things architecture. There's, you know, how to how to take people on that journey. Because that, That's literally it. It's, yeah, because I think it's that as is to the 2B, isn't it? You know, so... You need to do that with your CV slash experience slash skills, whatever that is that gives people the the comfort in the interview that that you know what you're talking about. I mean, the whole thing again is we we could probably yeah, go on about that for a while, but the problem with CVs is they're generally seen as an employment instrument, and we yeah, all... that's what I was just about to say. It it, yeah. it takes it away from. I think it's a great thing to to sort of talk about a little bit though, and we'll probably wrap this up anyway. But no, 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 that, that's basically where I was going for this. So if it's typically an employment instrument, and the problem is it is the organisations that ingest that. Um, now, as you know, I have nothing against agencies. I think um, you know there are yeah, me too. I think they're a good part really, of the really good job. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, unfortunately, there are quite a few agencies that don't. And what they do is they go out to a client and go, "What do you want?" They don't help build that help that client build out what that resourcing profile would look like, or what the most efficient way of doing, what they're trying to achieve, and all the rest of it. It's literally how many BAs do you want or whatever like that? And, you know, what are they doing? Oh, yeah, you know, I, I need five BAs because I'm putting an ERP system in. All right, okay. So they go out to market and basically look for um, CVs very, very specifically. Right, I want business analysts that have skills in this very, very specific ERP environment to yeah. this very, very specific ERP environment, for example. Now, we know there's a whole bunch of uh, reusable skills across different types of people that could go and do that job but yeah. actually um a, a recruitment agency won't see that what they'll do is if they can't get the keywords on a word search of your cv it's out the door right and, and this is the problem with dealing with that market but you're dealing with that market in agencies that specifically uh specialize in uh, resource augmentation or capacity augmentation mm. it's not around that those agencies don't have any specialism around capability augmentation mm. so i've come across a client i really care about the client they're trying to do this there's probably no job rolling for that so you know a new technology drops it's ai because that's going to be the next big one um there's no defined role for that you know it hasn't been defined it's too new um yeah. How do you provide capability to that? And it's only, I mean, if you look at agencies across the UK, barely 1% of them can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and But they're the ones that will try and form that real relationship with the both their clients and the candidate they're putting forward. And probably in this market, if you are using agencies as your primary um, um, segment and channel to get work, yeah, yeah it, those are the ones you really want to target. You want to yeah, I, I, yeah, I've got a couple of I've got a couple of agencies that I think do fit into that, and that, but they're smaller niche agencies. Yeah. yeah, and then the other ones are consultancies. You know, yeah, who, and that's your next one along. So yeah, consultancies already are able to do that type of yeah. uh, that management. They are supplying a potentially resource uh, augmentation capacity augmentation, but they're also doing. Uh, capacity or uh, capability augmentation and they're really used to that and yeah you might use a cv to get in there but they'll try and see the person behind the cv and what you're actually able to do in terms of you know plug in some of the things that their clients want um, and i think it's, it's, it's those horses for courses if you want to if you want to be an architect uh, at an organization doing solution architecture for example for um a finance system implementation whatever that that you know, organisation yeah. looking to do, um, maintain their digital presence, whatever. Then, yeah, you know what? Have a CV, go pitch it to a, an agent. They'll go uh, to to market, or they'll have requirement from market to get you an SA job. But it's not fractional consultancy. It's yeah. it, it's a job. Um, if you want to go beyond that, then it has to start coming down to relationships because what you need to convey is greater than what you can put on a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good, and I think that's a good place to probably wrap up on. But, you know, it is not a job; it is something that you can convey on a piece of paper. But 
maybe building relationships with various people and having your niche agents is is really what enables us to do what we do, you know. So listen, thanks very much for today. Thank you, Paul. Really enjoyed it. Um hopefully, you know, I'm keen to get some more um podcasts out there. Um they'll be on all things architecture. So uh, you know, and obviously uh, we're kinda um setting this up today is the first one so there's probably a few hiccups and stuff uh, dogs barking and cats jumping about but it's uh i think that's the thing it's about trying to be authentic and not um be too polished isn't it you know people want to believe in in who you are and and the fact that you've got real world experience you know there's a level of personality branding in in this it's personal branding so it's not just what you can do it's who you are uh to to, to a big point um and yeah it it can be quite difficult to scale from that if you really get too far into that because you know you might need to work to other people but it is like with all most things in business it's very much relationship games and people like people and so yeah it's it's big important really important yeah good man well Want to do any future ones, Paul? Just let me know. Yeah, awesome, man. Thanks very much. I'll see you soon. Cheers. Thank you, mate. Thank you.